It's ad time. First off, I want to remind you all that you can support the show at patreon.com slash beyondsolitaire. It would mean a lot to me, and I've got some surprises in store for my patrons, so I'll make it worth your while. Second, the Beyond Solitaire podcast is proudly sponsored by Central Michigan University's Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations. They've just wrapped up their Kickstarter campaign for Rising Waters, which will be their second published game, but check the landing page if you want to pledge late. You should also have a look at their site for information about their certificate in applied game design, which features upcoming classes from Eloilus Santa, Lamar Smith, and in a few months, yours truly. For now, though, let's get on with the show. Hey, gamers, this is Liz from Beyond Solitaire, and this week on the pod, I have a very special guest. This is Kathleen Mercury. She is a teacher and game designer and all-around badass, so I'm happy to have her on. How are you doing, Kathleen? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us where you are right now. Uh, my neighborhood is called Dorovans. I'm in Bucharest, Romania. I'm in the second year of teaching at the American International School of Bucharest here in Romania. And uh, before that was in the U.S. Um, for, I think, 17 years teaching. So, uh, yeah, uh, I'm in the land. I see it's not really the land of Dracula. I mean, yes, like Bram Stoker's <laughs> castle was here and stuff like that. But basically, Bram Stoker like saw a picture of it. Like, I don't think he was ever actually here. And so and um, there's not as much like Dracula stuff like floating around as you would sort of think. I mean, at the airport, you can buy all kinds of stuff with Dracula on it. But um, it's just uh, it's a super interesting country, though. Yeah, it sounds it. And also, mm. you've done a lot of teaching, some of which is in game design so what yeah. is the range of subjects that you teach and then of course we'll get back to the games because that's our thing well it's funny because my first two years i started off as teaching english and social studies then i taught gifted for 15 years which is how i was able to teach all kinds of things tabletop game design role play game design cosplay that's a whole other thing um congressional debate crop circles augmented reality robotics like i could teach like whatever i wanted and so um and then for the for these two years here i have been teaching math and science and now design which is one of the eight disciplines within the international baccalaureate curriculum so i've literally taught everything <laughs> almost at this point <laughs> i haven't taught a foreign language and that is because i would be terrible at that um because i don't speak any i'd be like okay <laughs> It'd be like Chang and community. I'm a Spanish genius. No. Um, <laughs> so, so now I'm currently teaching science and design, but back in the U.S., um, I was always looking for projects that would make my gifted children struggle. So I taught high IQ kids. And um, for a lot of times, school was a pretty easy endeavor for them. It may work or whatever, but like my job was to teach them uh, how to struggle. My job was to teach them to make something bad. And then what do you do to make this better? And how do you handle that process? Because if they thought school was just like, you know, do something once and get an A on it and move to the next thing, like we have not been preparing you for life. And so that's one of the reasons why game design works so well, because it's really fun but it's also so incredibly frustrating. You'll never be finished. So there's so many things you have to like learn about um, yourself, honestly, when you're working through the process. And because I hate the expression, those who can't do teach, because that's a misquote anyway, but that's how I started designing games uh, along with my students. And so my first one just came out a year ago called Grease Lightning. Another one of my games is in the process of going to print very soon. And another one of my games, uh, the publisher and I are in talks about it. Like, you know, if it's something that we think we can make work between us and uh, 
here we are. So basically you learned how to design games as part of your life as a teacher. You weren't yeah. like a game designer before who decided to teach it to kids. Correct. What, what, what made you jump in? Um, well, it's so funny. Um, I always say that, you know, if you were, if I was to think of myself as an animal, I would say I'm a rhino and I always define that as big, stupid. And I run until I hit something and, you know, and of course caveat, I'm not that, I'm not stupid, but, um, (laughs) but, but that has kind of been my approach, you know, like, I don't know what I'm going, like, if there's something I'm supposed, I have to do, and I may not know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out and it's going to work out. Okay. You know, so it comes, there was this one quote from Andy on parks and rec that someone took all these quotes of his and turned them into like motivational posters. And there's ones like um, him with, uh, it was like, uh, like this beautiful picture. And it said, I tried to make ramen in the coffee pot and I broke everything, you know, and (laughs) that makes me laugh every time. But um, there was one that said, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know I'm doing it really, really well. And for me, that absolutely encompasses and encapsulates what it means to like be a game designer, but also like when I was teaching, like, I'm going to figure it out. And then so, and I think in a lot of ways, when it comes to having that kind of like design sort of mindset where you're used to like doing something, getting feedback, improving on it, like a lot of ego drops away, you know, because I'm bad at stuff too, you know, so in talking with my students, like I was the, I asked was at parent teacher conferences, I was asking, it's like, what can I do better? And they're like, we're not really used to ask being asked. I said, well, but like, if there's, it's like when I play test a prototype, if there's a problem, I don't know, unless you tell me, you know, and so we had some really good conversations, but they were not expecting that. But that just, I think comes from being a designer is, you know, you just have to be okay with the mess basically, but that's what teaching is, you know, like we design stuff all the time. So game design is just like a different medium, honestly. Yeah. I mean, that actually makes a lot of sense. I think it's really interesting to talk about like, oh, how can I improve? Like I do take student feedback, but I do think that's still comparatively very rare in high school Mm -hmm. classrooms, especially. And in earlier levels as well like I mean the evaluation is part of a college course but I think yeah well and I think and I think for me doing it at the end is so incredibly stressful and I hate that and I don't see the point of that you know like if it was something that you you know because let's say that I give and because I've had to do this right you give somebody feedback and then they mention something like two months ago that didn't work for them you know like I feel bad I can't do anything about it I can't I can't I didn't change anything to help you at the time. So I think it's one of those things where um, if you were, if I were, you know, in a place where I had to ask for feedback more formally, I would want to do it like every two or three weeks, like, you know, quick check-in and, and that's just good teaching. You know, you wait till the end and, you know, and like a lot of times like kids would say really nice things and it would be such a relief, but even the ones where it was like one little thing of like, of, of, of something that they didn't understand or do, it's like, it makes no sense to wait until the very end. And so that way too, especially like, um, and feedback helps people become invested, right? When they say, okay, yeah. guys, so I, this is some feedback I got. This is something that we're going to do, you know, and it becomes much more collaborative of a relationship between you right. and the students. And they're a lot more willing to trust you because you, you're demonstrating really authentically, like, hey, look, I am making mistakes, but guess what? we're in this together and what can I do to help you? You know? So, yeah. um, I, I think it's worth doing. Um, cause I always hate it at the end. Hate it, hate it, 
Yeah. I mean, I think it also models like what you're really asking of them. Uh, mm -hmm. because you know, that idea that you don't have to give feedback and you just accept is part of that kind of transactional aspect that you're trying to avoid. Um, if you're trying to get kids to challenge themselves instead of just one and done it, like right. a lot of my students sort of feel like, well, I half-assed this work, I handed it to you and it's done. So can I just get my grade and go? And, yeah. you know, they're not necessarily even interested in feedback because the relationship is over once there's a number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a thing that we struggle with too here, especially because we have a different grading system. I mean, it's through like one through seven, but it's weird because it's kind of like three, four, five, six are like kind of like the C to B range in terms of like C is like you're meeting that expect expectation. B is you're starting to really get it. And yeah. so to get into the A range of like a seven or even an eight, because they're actually that's a whole other issue when there's an eight, when there's not, that's a whole other thing. Um, and so within that tiny range, you know, you're kind of covering like, where are they? And so sometimes also for me as a teacher, you know, making that decision on, you know, we have rubrics and all this other stuff, but, you know, it's always ultimately a judgment call. And, you know, for as much as we stress and, you know, like, oh, trying to get this as right as possible, make the, you know, the rubrics clear, all that stuff. And then, um, yeah, kids look at the number. They're like, oh, I got a blah, blah, blah. You're like, but, 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 you know? So, um, yeah, I think, so what we started doing to help with that was we have the kids write reflections on why they got that on all the different things. So yeah. we post comments in their grading system like we have to. Comments that we post are students' reflections on what they did because I can give them a lot of different feedback on stuff and they may never ever look at it, but when they have to really look at it and give themselves feedback, because sometimes too, they're like way harsher on themselves than I think they need to be. So it's a good time too to like check in like, no, no, you know, this is actually all right, so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's awesome. So I guess, how do you get the kids to take the leap into game design? Like I'm actually in the process of designing my first game with a friend right now, and it mm -hmm. feels so messy yeah, and so uncertain. And I don't yeah. know that I could ever do it by a deadline. I don't know. Like we're just kind of naturally moving on. And I'm working with David Thompson. He's done this a million times. So this is easy mm -hmm. for me, right? Like I, I can just, we, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm working with somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> But how do you, you know, it just scares me. Like the thought of trying to break it down, grade it, assess it, chunk it. Ugh. Well, I mean, and so with the this design, the way we're doing it now, there's like a, the design cycle um, is, has four stages and each of those stages has like four different strands. So like different parts of the design process. Um, I for me, I feel like we do way, like the kids that are supposed to do way more writing and less actual doing, which I personally have a hard time with because when I started teaching game design and, and like literally making everything up as I went, you know, having kids write things is a way to say, okay, they know this, they see this, they're doing something and we can have them do something, you know, but especially the more I got comfortable with it and then took uh, classes from uh, Stanford University's design school, did their boot camp and a bunch of other stuff became much more comfortable with the idea of like rapid iteration and just all these different things. So I moved away from having the kids write a lot. They could talk about it, you know, and there are times where maybe I could have had a little more like self-reflection from kids, but I feel like here, um, it's an interest. There's some things that I, that are different than how I've done it before. Like we're basically going to work through one cycle over the course of a few months. Whereas before I would have the kids kind of do like 
of, of a design cycle three or four times in that period, you know? So, right. um, yeah. So, but basically, I mean, I think like anything else, like if you're going to have kids design games, um, there's a few things to keep in mind. One is what I call like, you know, game literacy. Like if you're going to write a mystery book, you better read a bunch of mystery books. So if you Google make a board game or kids make board games, something like that on Google, you're going to see a lot of things that look like uh, Monopoly, you know, Suits and Ladders, Candyland, because that's their level of gaming literacy. Those are the games they know. So if you want kids to design games, you have to have to have to play games that are like the games you want them to design for. And so when I have kids play games in class, you have to have that as part of a game design class. And each game has to have ideas that they could rip off and put into their game. So the cool thing for me this year is because I have this one class for design where we're doing board game design. I'm also their science teacher. And we've been doing ecology and ecosystems and biomes and food webs and all that. And back before when I taught game design, the first game I would ever have kids design is a game about an animal because animals' lives have conflict. You're a dolphin, I'm a dolphin, there's one fish, we have a game, right? So it actually has moved into something that I am more comfortable with, with having students design around a game because it's so concrete, you know, like as far as like, what are the animals? What's the conflict that they have? You know, and, and it's something that you can easily model into a game because when kids make games, the board looks like a world. You know, they, it tends to look like a map, no matter where it is. Very, I almost never have had kids create games where it's like the board is a place to like organize information or like economic status or something like that. No, the board is always a world. So using animals like that. So the, the main thing is, is um, the worst thing you can do is for to do any type of game design is like give people a bunch of stuff and people say go make a game because I've been to those types of workshops and it's super frustrating because they're like don't worry about it it's just about the process and because it's so unclear what you're supposed to do it's real hard to have like any sort of like positive sense of like am I actually even doing anything right now at this right point? So, so I'm a big believer in design constraints especially when it comes to kids but honestly, even adults, one of my favorite things I did was I did a workshop at um, Tabletop Network, um, and this was uh, connected to Board Game Geeks uh, Game Conference, and, and I had a 30-minute, well, it's like 45-minute design jam where they had 10 minutes to design three different games. So one game was this, one game was this, one game was this. And it was like, go, 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 go. And the thing was, is like, and this was like some of the most like prolific published designers were in the room for this. You know, it's like little me telling, you know, like Daryl Andrews and Isaac Childress and Jonathan Ling, like, hey, here's how you design a game, kids. Um, but it was great because honestly, you know, it was like, it was very well like constructed. The first challenge was um, this race games in the bag. So they got a paper game a paper bag. And in that was a bunch of different bits and they could use those bits and that paper bag to make the game. And a race game is easy because that's the other type of game I'd always have kids make because most childhood games are, I'm going on a lot of detail. So you don't... <laughs> no, I'm actually super, this okay. is good. Okay. We like okay. Okay. Good. Um, and so uh, race games are always what I would have kids, a race game about an animal because 
um, in a race game, you know exactly what the game structure is. You know, what are players supposed to do? How do you win? Go from here to here. First one across the line wins. And then with an animal. So then just, it all comes down to like how you have them race. Right. And so, um, and even using the bits, cause they're all like different kind of like thematic bits, you know, like different shapes and stuff of like, you know, little people or whatever. So people had some like, you know, like thematic elements that they could work into this too, you know, and it worked really, really well because, you know, it was, an, it was enough of a constraint where people knew what they had to do, but there was open enough where people in 10 minutes, you know, they had to just go. And the nice thing about 10 minutes is you don't have, don't do this to kids. Don't do this to kids because especially if they don't have a lot of gaming experience. I mean, this is something that works well for adults who have a lot of experience who are into this. This is because if you have no idea, then you're just 10 minutes of them sitting there. And, actually, and so it was, I mean, people came out and it was funny because some of the designers I was talking to, like, I actually really like what I came up with and I'm going to keep working on it. Like, that's amazing. Right. But um, the second challenge, which is actually pretty funny, um, I gave them a dossier on the McDonald land characters, you know, the hamburger and all those, you know, from the seventies and uh, the commercials from back then are horrifying, but like, that was a materials challenge. They got two pieces of cardstock and I showed them the McDonald land commercial. And I said, okay, McDonald's wants to be like young and hip. You know, they want to create a buzzworthy game. This is something that basically would be packed, a flat pack kind of thing, either like a newspaper like they do with Monopoly or like with Happy Meals or whatever. So those two pieces of cardstock, that's all you got. So if you wrote rules on it, then that was area that you lost out to actually use that to make the game components. And so it was like an IP challenge. It was a materials challenge. And the energy in the room just crashed, you know, like people was like, ooh, because... You know, the first one's playing to their strengths, right? The second one is, you know, but like at the same convention, Rob Davio was talking about how he didn't necessarily make his life goal was to create My Little Pony Life, but you got to keep the lights on and they, they got paid to make My Little Pony Life, you know? So um, I'm a big believer in design constraints. And the nice thing too about the 10 minute thing, and again, don't do this with kids. Um, the, the nice thing about the 10 minute challenge was like, if you really hated it, it was over in 10 minutes. All right, let's move on to the next one. Yeah, there's there's a great mercy in keeping things short if you're not necessarily like ready. <laughs> right, right, right. And that's and that's one that's that's one shift I was actually moving away from back at my former job from having kids. They did a race game with an animal and then they could make a game of their choice and kind of keep working on it. You know, and the idea was they would iterate on it and see the game improvement. But there were always kids every time who just didn't like what they made. And they, and if a kid really hated it, they never really stopped hating it. You know, it was real hard for that. And they could walk out of the experience, not that positive because they just didn't like that. And so one of the things I was moving away from was instead of one big, you know, small game and one big game was small game and then like three small games, you know, so different types of design challenges and right. with every challenge that they would get better. And, um, and then that way they have a bunch of different games to come out with. And at the end, they pick the one that they want to finish, that they want to work on, that they want to write the rules for and all that. So, um, you know, you're sacrificing that iteration and they do, they get to love playtesting and making improvements, but it's also like, if a kid doesn't love their game, you've got a long time for a kid when they're young for a project, mm -hmm. you know, so there's different ways to approach it. Yeah. I mean, honestly, anything can run long, even for a high schooler. Like I try my, my best lesson plans have like 
things to do to transition between like for me like the mm. game of teaching right is like how long can I stay on this one thing like, like I'm always trying to break up the class yeah um, because very few people have the focus to sit there and do anything for an extended period of time right for sure for sure for <laughs> sure yeah I was thinking about science and how we were setting up our little eco columns and they're like I mean that was the opposite type of lesson where you had like okay there's 18 different things we're doing right now buckle in face eyes up here here we go <laughs> you know um but it was okay. That's awesome. So I guess one of my, it's like a softer skill question as a teacher, mm. right? Cause you can't create, like, how do you help students work through frustration and the feeling that they're not getting anywhere, especially if they're students who are used to success yeah. immediately. Like, I, I feel that when gifted kids hit a wall, it yeah. is always the worst the first few times they do it because to them, it's such a novel experience. And right. They, they hate yeah. it. How do you get them through? Yeah. And I think a lot of it, especially when, when I was working with gifted kids, my classes tend to be a little bit smaller and I would work with them um, in seventh and eighth grade. I mean, I did a game design in seventh, but so, but when they, when I got them again in eighth grade, you know, I knew them pretty well. We had that relationship going um, and it, you know, it's really so individual, you know, I would always say for people wanting to teach game design, if you're the type of person who likes to sit behind your desk, this is not the type of like thing you should do. You know, I mean, yeah, kids can be real independent and spend a lot of like, shoot you know maybe 10% of my classes for me talking about stuff not the rest of it was them working which you know is honestly a happy time for everybody but um it just it just depends some kids um would need they'd be like stuck and they're like I don't know what to do and I would say what are your two what you know what are the things you're thinking about and then I would say do that one and then they'd be like oh okay and then they could keep going you know what I mean and sometimes it's that and sometimes um you know some kids would come up to me like yep that's dilly of a humdinger there Jethro what you gonna do about it you know it just depends on the kid and like and and like and what the type of push they need um mm -hmm. both uh, based on like how you know how they work but also what they need to do you know and sometimes like you know I mean, very rarely, but I had kids like put together whole game projects the night before because they just struggled so much throughout, you know, and it's not that they weren't capable of it. It's just, you know, for just their particular chemistry and their personality and all that. And they would finally put something together at the end and they knew and I knew, you know, because they have to work. I mean, that's one thing you have to like actually do it you actually have to make a game you have to like come in with something you have to draw the 30 cards you have to do the whatever you know so um if kids really are bottoming out on that you can see it um so it's just when kids want to they when it's especially when kids really hate their game and want to restart at the 11th hour and i would usually let them because you know that's part of the process how does this go is it going to work out for you or not um but if it was like they just didn't really do anything and then at the end they wanted to restart it, you know, yeah. the, the positive takeaway is in the end, nobody really, I mean, this is just a game, right? This is just a school project. The most important things at the end were always like, what are you going to take from this experience that you were going to apply to other avenues in life, that you're going to apply to other classes, et cetera? And like, that's where you got to real, like really saw the soft skill development, everything from, um, if I'm struggling, I should reach out to other people and get their ideas and feedback on my ideas so that I can move forward. You know, like the things you're like, yes, God, those are all the things that I want to see you do, you know? So um, yeah. game design works really well for that. 
So how do you put a number on that? I mean, we talked briefly about rubrics, but I mean, you can't, I would feel uncomfortable grading kids on the quality of the game they produce. Yeah, and I didn't. No, I didn't. So, but I also would not want to just give only completion grades because then you have kids who just kind of farted something out and they're like, well, I did it. So how do you... So it's it's kind of funny because like at my former school, if there was like, they farted something out kind of thing, like I think we would kind of, we kind of forget sometimes just at how monumental that can be. You know, just to even get something done, you know, especially when you're working with such, you know, like could be so far out of their comfort zone, like that, that can be success. Um, No, when it, when it came to assessment, um, so much of it was about the process. It wasn't about the games because the the games aren't going to be good. And it was funny because kids are like, no, you need to grade them based on if the game is good. And what they meant by that, that like I worked on it and I made the game better. And that's really where I try to focus on like, where did you start? Where did you end? What are all the things you did along the way? And the more they could articulate that process. And this is actually kind of more like in line to with where the IB school is, is having kids really like, explain and articulate their thinking, their process along the way, um, the more they could do that, then that's where like their grades would come from, you know, like the rules, rule books are easy because they tend to be pretty like, I mean, you can grade on grammar, you can grade on a whole bunch of like very objective things in terms of what they write. Um, But for games themselves, because you're going to have kids, you know, who are so incredibly ambitious and fall short. And you'll have so many kids who are like so incredibly ambitious and they put this thing together and like everything in between, you know? So the main thing is, is like the hardest thing about teaching game design is getting kids to see success in very small incremental moments, as opposed to it was terrible. And then the next one might be less terrible, but it's still terrible. And then the next one might be um, less terrible, less terrible, you know? And so that's a lot with the seventh grader, you know, for them to have this type of project and all this like coming into play, I mean, it's hard for any of us. So I just try to be really human with them in the process because what is it that I'm really trying to get out of them? I want them to learn to work through a process. I want them to learn to push through adversity. I want them to have mindfulness about themselves and their process with it. Because like, if the only thing that they took from this experience was how to design a board game and nothing else, then that's, then I failed. That's not really the point of this. They do make legit games. They make good legit games sometimes, you know, um, but it's, it's, everything that comes into play with it, you know, cause you've got math and science and arts. You've got like, it's so comprehensive with all the different things. There are things any kid can probably find to be really successful. And there's other things that, you know, um, like will be a challenge for them at the same time. Like that's awesome. I love this. This is something I wish I had experienced in my own kind of, I, I am like a gifted kid in recovery, <laughs> but like, <laughs> I mean, and, and you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've taught mm. so many of them. Yeah, and, and I think that's one thing too, because especially um, that's one thing that I think is kind of interesting. Like I, I um, gifted education hasn't had an easy time of it in the last, you know, so many years. So many states have uh, like taken away line item funding, kind of throw it into the lump and stuff. And so gifted programs have kind of gone by the wayside and stuff. And, and even then, like for myself, being at... Um, 
you know, I've gone to gifted conferences and I've met some district gifted teachers. And when I meet them, I know exactly what they are. And they're basically teachers that they wanted to take out of whatever classroom they were in. And they put them in with gifted kids because they're like, at least they can't make them worse, you know, sort of thing. I mean, and that's, you know, a small number, but it's so incredibly frustrating because um, I do it. And there's, there's some pushback here. You know, um, I think in the internet, like gifted is not super common, you know, out here in the international wilds. And so um, there's a lot of pushback towards it, you know, if it can be seen as like elitism or whatever. And my thing is, is like all kids deserve to learn at their level every single day, you know, period, end of story. And my approach to, you know, gifted classes as a teacher wasn't, I mean, it was an intervention. You know, and you had to see it as an, like there's an identified need and then how do we intervene to address that need, you know, and so having that approach um, made my focus on like what I was doing with students um, like intentionally targeted towards these sorts of things, yeah. um, because if it's like you're told you're gifted, but and you're, you're told lovely things like, oh, you can do anything. And then when you're not doing everything, you're just kind of like, I feel like I'm a failure. Like there's all kinds of things. It's tough. Oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's super tough. Like we don't have a problem sorting kids by ability on sports teams, but at schools, we have a hard time sorting kids by ability. And I, and, you know, I, I think just routinely across the board, putting kids into classes by grade level is done out of administrative convenience. It's not because of what's most developmentally appropriate to a kid because anyone knows that development for kids kind of looks like this. And to say that all seventh graders or all fourth graders or all third graders will be at one place at a time, we know that's not true, right? So how do we structure what we're doing in a way that all kids can learn at their level every single day? And until schools do that, you know, we do sometimes have to have a need, you know, for gifted classes. And, um, and, and it's funny too, cause like, I don't, um, I don't try to like, it's kind of weird. Cause, cause especially when people like really deep seated rooted beliefs about some things, even if they're not necessarily based on, uh, like research and stuff, it's kind of hard to have those fights, but I got in a discussion, not fights, but you know, yeah, he did, for, no, not, not even here, just, you know, just profession, professional yeah. dialogues, right? So I was talking with this one uh, person at my school and um, and they're like, whole child is more important. I'd rather sacrifice like kids' growth in math in order for them to have their whole needs met and all that. And the thing is, is like, it sounds good, right? And I, so I said, well, here's, okay, so let's say that you've got a kid who's exceptionally gifted, like the kind of kid who graduates high school at 14. Yeah. Um, is it a good idea to send that 14 year old kid to college? And they're like, no, it's not a good idea. I said, here's the thing. That's not what the research says. The research says it's actually way better for that kid to be learning at their level every single day. And instead of like whatever losses they're learning from not being with peers their age, because they have such, mm -hmm. they can have such a hard time like being with peers their age sometimes that when they're with other people who are at their intellectual level, you know, it's way better for them. And she's like, well, you know, I'm not going to send a, a 14 year old to live in a dorm room. I'm like, of course you're not. If a 14 year old kid goes to college, the family goes to college. The kid goes to like a, you know, yeah. you know, goes to college in the city where the parents live, like they still live at home. That's not fair to anybody to put a right. 14 year old in a college dorm, but it's just one of those things that, um, you know, people have such deep rooted beliefs about, especially when, you know, um, 
you know, you don't want to feel bad about yourself academically in school, but if there's other people that are, because I was in gifted programs too, and my sisters weren't, right? Um, but you don't want people to feel bad about like, oh, I'm not in this thing. But if we structure our schools to be places where everyone gets to learn at their level every single day, then that means my sister Kristen would get all the sports programs that she would want. That means my sister Karen got all the academic you know, programs that she wanted, you know, that my little sister Kelly could just have the opportunity to build relationships across the board with so many different people that she cared about, you know, so, um, you know, sand, you know, it's, it's a tough one, because I, you know, but it's also one that there's just a lot of misconceptions about. And yeah. It's really, and, and it's really frustrating. And, and I struggle, like the college analogy, right? I absolutely agree that a kid should not be in a dorm at 14 and also mm-hmm. should be able to learn on level every day. But yeah. also I'm also, I think if you want the college experience, it would really suck to not be able to get it when you actually are age appropriate to live in a dorm. Right. And like, you know, it's those kinds of things. Like life's a series of trade-offs, right? Like what are you? Yeah. But I think also too, when you're saying like the college experience, like for me yeah, to say, so right. And for me to say, well, I want you to have the college experience I had. It's like, I don't know that I do. Cause I was pretty bored when at the college I went to, I should have gone to a different type of school for me just right. knowing it. You know what I mean? So I think that we, we don't want people to lose out. We want people to have like every possible opportunity. And at the end, it just comes down to what's the best thing to do. And, you know, and I have incredible empathy for parents. There's so much pressure on yeah. parents and their kids and all that. And it's like, look, you know, you can raise a kid on sugar, water, and love, and you're going to make decisions. And you know, from there, because one of the things I was talking about with uh, with some of the teachers I work with here at the international school, we have a very transient population. And I, that was one of the things I didn't expect. Um, I knew that teachers move around, like you get a two-year contract to start. Most international teachers tend to stay three to five, four to seven years, go on to, and work all over the world. It's, it's actually super interesting. But the thing too is there's a lot of students, especially at our school, we have all of the kids from the American embassy, all their, all those families, kids go to our school. Embassy employees move every three years. So every three years, those kids are going to different schools. And, you know, it's it, like, I think, you know, you know, that's obviously very uncommon in the U.S. to move around that much in some ways, but um, that's one of the things that's like, I feel like we don't like talk about enough about how traumatic that can really be on kids is, you know, like, like losing, like when your friends leave, you know, and then, or you have to leave and move around so many places and you do it so much and you do it so often, you know, like that could create like some really negative attachment disorders with kids. I mean, really, you know, like your family has to be like super strong and unified, but like families are families, like, you know, you know, everybody's trying to figure it out as we go. But I feel like it's, you know, especially like also here for like the Romanian kids at my school, we have a third um, that are Romanian and those kids, you know, can come in, at, you know, kindergarten first, whatever, right. And go through our school and they constantly have friends coming and going, you know? And so yeah. after a while, what can happen is our Romanian kids get kind of like towards like the, the higher ends, like a little bit more clickish, but it also makes sense as to why, because if you're constantly like making friends and then having that sort of heartbreak, my point is, it's just, 
you know, <laughs> we're all trying to do the best we can to meet everybody. Yes. And we're all going to mess up in some ways and we're all going to do great things in some ways. And uh, just uh, be ready to send your kids to therapy or yourself if you need it. Been there. It's good. No, but uh, so I, I actually have a different kind of equity question though. Yeah. And like, I, I want to expound it, but it essentially boils down to you. Like, why is it the gifted kids who get to do the fun stuff? Because I, so I teach, I got gifted certified last year. Mm-hmm. I taught special education my very first year of teaching. My Latin mm-hmm. classes contain the full range of students. Yeah. And we try to create an experience where everybody is able to make progress to the greatest mm-hmm. extent possible in Latin. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, the transactional issues of things, learning how to deal with adversity, wanting to feel that sense of progress and growth as opposed to like a specific kind of output. I feel like those sorts of learning objectives that you said that you had for your gifted kids mm-hmm. are just as, or maybe more important oh, totally. for kids totally. who aren't. And how do, you know what I mean? Like, I guess, yeah, why? And I mean, it's not, this is something you and I can't control, right? Like right. You were hired for a gifted position, but like, is there a way to yes. help bring these things to yeah. broader ranges of students and like how would you approach that and what could that mean for education well so um uh, you know the the two great enemies for any school any teacher is money and time right and what we the time we have and then the money that we have to do things and so one of the things in my former school i had to have six t- teaching periods and it was only possible to give me five gifted classes so i had to have i had a slot where we had to do something and so we came up with the idea of um basically a class for kids who had missed the cutoff for giftedness and to put them into a type of open-ended like problem solving type of class and i mean all kids deserve to learn at their level every single day and if we think that only gifted kids can do open-ended problem solving learn how to struggle classes then we're not serving all kids right and so um we had a class for kids who were close the thing that i thought was interesting especially considering that we were starting this like when they were in eighth grade These were kids who were used to, you know, going into class, getting their work done, doing a very good job on it, and then being left alone or whatever to then read the book or whatever. Um, I mean, not always, obviously, you know, but, you know, lots of times, you know, and so being asked to do extra work in this class was something that they had a hard time with being asked to go back and improve on work and stuff like just because it wasn't in a class where they're like in writing, they're used to doing that or maybe in other classes, but just in this like kind of bubble, like they had a real hard time. And it was a surprise to me, like, like, oh yeah, this is this, they're having a hard time with this. Like, this is different. Like, how do we like learn how to do this? And so I don't think we're serving our kids. Well, especially for what we're talking about, the type of innovative problem solving work. Like I think every kid should have a design class. I think every kid should be given a problem, have to come up with a solution to figure out who the audience is and what are the materials you have? What's your plan? You know, like however you want to do it, you know? Um, And, and I think that's like, those are the classes that kids remember more than anything, you know, because they actually got to do things. There's so much history. And I would say this was a history teacher, right? You know, like there's a lot of content. And this is what I think, one of the things I was actually really excited about in COVID was like how much technology really became like infused into what we were doing. It wasn't like, oh, I use technology in my class because I have them use this app. Like things became really technologically like, 
you know, melded. But the problem is, is like we've kind of backtracked, you know, kind of like snap back to like kind of old school ways of doing things. You know, it's like I have here a device that is connected to the vast stores of human knowledge. And so when it comes to like actual like content, well, now the, the new thing is, is teaching kids like how, if it's even going to be possible soon to identify what's fake and what's real and all that other stuff. But it's the, but having knowledge for the sake of knowledge sake and lots and lots of knowledge is something that we know is irrelevant. You know yeah. what I mean? Like kids can study for super big exams, do really well on them and then forget everything that was on that exam. And like, so is it about cramming, you know, is it about this, like think about it work, you know, like, I mean, obviously as teachers, we work independently, but there's so many fields where literally you work in groups all the time, all the time. So yeah. we have to come up with ways on how we can help kids learn to work in groups, assess kids who like differently within groups, you know, like what if you had a class, literally all group work, right? And, and as teachers were like, well, I mean, that sounds great, but I also have to know how this kid is doing and this kid is doing and this kid is doing, but it's also not reflective of the real world in terms of the types of settings that they'll be in, you know, like right. that you, you turn in something and then you get a grade on it and boom, that's it, you know, I mean, we're, we try to make our assessment um, like more fluid as far as like as a snapshot, as a place of here's where you are. Here's, you know, like it's like it's it's not like it's not a percentage of like yeah. what you got right. It's based on like, you know, different strands of understanding or whatever or demonstration of different skills or whatever. Um, this is where you're at. These are the things that you'll need to know how to do or you'll need to show more to do better next time, which I do like that approach. Because like at the end, you know, we have to be able to say, here's where kids are at in some way. Right. And how, what's the, I mean, no one knows, you know, what's the best way to do that in a way that keeps kids motivated as opposed to demotivating them. You know, it's tough. Yeah. And like, I, I, yeah, I guess my thought is what I'm kind of taking for this, because this, I love doing this podcast because I always like end up with my own little thoughts about things, right. From talking to smart people, but like, um, I, um, I guess it makes me think like, yes, everybody should get to work on their level every day at school, mm -hmm. but I don't think that anybody's level is sitting there doing a worksheet. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like right. everybody well, should be getting something that's a little crunchier and more interactive and more. Yeah. Relevant. I mean, but here's the other thing, yeah. <laughs> you know, because like, as like, I mean, as far as a worksheet goes, it just depends. It yeah, depends what you're doing on there. Right. You know, because, um, it, it just depends. But the other thing too, is like, if every single class for kids was like deep and crunchy and interactive and multiple things going on, all this other stuff, kids would go home and fall apart. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't think that there's, a, I think it's okay to do like, you know, it's like you want to post hole, like some classes might go hard and deeper than others might be like, Hey, today we're going to do some reading and we're going to ask you questions and see if you understood what we're reading. And the idea that, yeah. you know, like there's going to be these sorts of like flows and stuff like that, you know? So, I mean, and also too, you know, teachers are humans and, and, and the world hasn't really seemed to learn that so well because of COVID we're, we were expected to turn with, into computers along with uh, our computers too. But you're um, not a, you're not a hero saint. Right. There uh, times, and counselor. And <laughs> right. There are times, there are times where uh, there's the ideal way. And then there's the way that's going to get us through. Right. Yeah. Oh and yeah. So, so then that's what we're going to do. That's and I think how, it's also, it's also okay for kids to see that 
and mm-hmm. to be open about that with them. Like, yeah. you know, I had a surgery a couple weeks ago and then I'm back at work, but I'm, mm-hmm. I went a little earlier, back a little earlier than technically my doctor told me to, because I, you know, you know, as you do, um, because they're better off with me than they are with a sub, even from yeah. slow. Right. Mm-hmm. But my kids were totally understanding of like, Hey, this is not my most energetic week. And they're like, right. okay, cool. No problem. Okay. They completely understand it. And it's, I think it's maybe good for them to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally is. And I think that's one thing too, because especially, um, yeah, I mean, right. We're human. Right. And so, um, you know, we have a lot on our plates. We've got a lot, you know, that we're trying to juggle. And then there's like all the other stuff that we have to do at school sometimes too, that take away from the actual time we spend teaching and working with kids, you know? So yeah, you're human. So if you got to give out a worksheet and stuff, because like, I have to have you learn this. I mean, there were times, even in my gifted class, because we were so process oriented, there were times like, how do I assess this? And there were times like, okay, I'm giving you a thing. And how you do on this is what I'm putting in the infinite campus monster because I got to feed it. It's been a while and kids are like, cool, we get it. You know what I mean? Because they're used to doing that, you know, a lot. Anyway, we're we're human, you know, and that is one nice thing I will say about um, when I came to this school last year out of the eight teaching periods, we have four classes in a day and they rotate every other day and all that. And um, when I got hired last year, it was my first time teaching at an international baccalaureate school. It was my first time teaching science. I'm certified, but I'd done like science Olympiad and stuff like that. I hadn't actually taught science as a class. And it was my first time teaching math, never having taught it before, not being certified. And so, <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So if that's like, if that's not being a rhino, I don't know what is. But um, I ended up, uh, they gave us, I, my, myself and this other teacher who was hired at the same time to teach the same things, um, we taught four out of the eight periods. And there were a lot of like the, the responsibilities that, you know, um, returning teachers would have to do that we did not have to do That's like, nice. as, a, as a first year teacher. It was the most humane thing that I had experienced in education towards understanding. And, and I think this school's better because I still have three planned periods um, and five teaching periods. Um, back home, it was like six out of eight, some places it's seven out of eight, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and because the work that we do as teachers is seen to be part of the work that they have to pay us for, as right. opposed to we're going to squeeze every bit out of you and then have you in meetings and then expect you to do all this at home on your own. And there's been a really big pushback about, you know, doing that. And I think that's important. I think that's healthy. I, you know, there's some real problems in education that honestly come down to funding. You know, if you don't pay people well, they're going to go to other fields. If you don't have enough money to have enough staff, then, you know, people are going to feel really, you know, demoralized and burnt out and all that. Like there's some real, real issues and I, it's hard um, you know, I'd love to see the state say, Hey, we're going to double everybody's salary. This is a fun little experiment and let's see what happens, you know, because I think there's a lot of people that would not want that to be successful. You know what I mean? It's a whole yeah. other complicated thing. You know, there's gender issues. There's all kinds of other stuff that go into it. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah. But my least, my least favorite comment that's ever made to me as a teacher is, um, well, why do you worry about money? You do it for the kids. Right. Yeah. I mean, I and, do, but I'm not doing it for free. <laughs> right. And I can't pay my mortgage and Bath and Body Works hand soaps. You know, right. I mean, if, if teachers got like, you know, huge discounts on mortgages and all this other stuff to make up for like the, the happy smiles and stuff like that, that's just an excuse to avoid people paying what they're worth. That's it. You know, because yeah. people quit jobs that pay more. For the, for the same sort of like dissatisfaction issue. So don't use kids as a weapon in that 
no boo you do not do that yeah yep exactly. <laughs> all right so um we i've been talking to you for a while but i, I have to i have to ask about grease mm. lightning oh yeah because i saw a picture of it i think on like twitter or instagram mm-hmm. or something the other day it looks so cool is it a it's greek so mythology cool. game it is it's set in greek mythology and the best part is my sister karen uh came up with the name and she helped because originally it was a space theme game and she helped assign all the different abilities to different gods and then suggested some other ones um some other abilities that would fit certain gods and i totally forgot to put her in the rule book so karen lucas i'm sorry again <laughs> um yeah so it's a race game because the thing is is actually it is a game where it takes everything that happens in kids games but gives choice and agency so um it's basically like you know you roll dice and move your ship around the board to win the race these all things sound familiar but the dice have a roll and move option you know as far as you can try to press your luck or just stay with where you're at um there's like cards you can play but there you can be really strategic about how you use them and the abilities are kind of interesting are interesting um the the big thing with the board is because it's circular and it's like pie wedge shaped pieces that when you put pieces down on the board um it changes the pathway so you can put like something bad in front of somebody else you can put something good in front of something in front of yourself you know so um those pathways um like help with uh like it's it's probably the most innovative neatest part of the game as far as like changing how it looks and stuff like that so yeah um I mean that's one that uh I think I worked on we worked on that Mark uh Selmer, my co-designer I think we worked on that one I think it was eight or nine years before I we like got to hold the physical copy in hand <laughs> you know like you know, but, um, and that's the thing, because even talking about like passion projects, like if I had known, like the thing like the, you would do anyway, it's like, had, if I had known that it was going to take that long, would I have still done it? Yeah, totally would have, you know? So yeah. And it was a big deal to have my name out finally, you know, in a game on the shelf. I've like gone to game stores and seen it sitting there. That's super exciting. So yeah. That's awesome. And, yeah. and for those of you who are listening, it's Grease, G-R-E-E ce yes lightning. yes yes from whiz kids and it is available for purchase so yeah fantastic and then yeah. what have you been playing for fun right now just that brings you some joy Ooh, um so my um i'm looking around my stacks of games and stuff like that um <laughs> So I've been actually uh, traveling a bit and my boyfriend was here for three weeks and he is a war gamer and uh, that's very different than I am as a gamer. I'm like a fast and loose kind of player, but we actually traveled. His favorite uh, war game is Napoleon's Triumph. So we actually traveled to the Battle of Austerlitz site outside of Brno in the Czech Republic. I know some people call it Czechia or Czechia, but Anyway, so in case people yelling at me about the pronunciation, I know which I'm probably wrong on which one I'm choosing for the name of the country. But the point is, we went to the battle site. We did like seven hours, you know. So if there was a place where Napoleon blew his nose, like we were there, you know. Um, <laughs> so that's like as far as like, and, and the tour guide, she was just like, she's given so many tours to people who are like obsessed with Napoleon and this, that never, ever had someone wanted to go because of a board game. So that was pretty great, actually. Um, but we play a lot of like two player games, small, fast little two player games. So um, like, you know, Love Letter. I love Oink games. So I just went to Essen and I bought, you know, I always buy the Oink games that I don't have. Um, but uh, my favorite, one of my favorite card games 
because I sold off most of my games or donated a lot of them to before I came over. And then it's like, right. crap, you know, I really want to have this game. And one of the ones that I've had such a hard time finding over here uh, is No Thanks. It's a short little fast card game. And um, at S and I was having dinner with uh, one of my friends who's the uh, outsider. He's the, the chief operating officer for Amigo Spiele. And he's like, well, that's because it's one of their games. So I'm like, I can't find it anywhere. And he's like, oh, it has a different name. And it means Shona Shaisa, which basically means like nice shit. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Because I was looking for like no things. So I was looking for nine danka, right? No. And so I ended up finding it. So I finally got that and I've introduced that one to friends and play that one too. And so that, so a lot of like small tabletop stuff, but it's like, because that was a nice thing too. Like we went to Berlin and we spent a couple afternoons at beer gardens. We're literally, you know, beer, some yummy food, drinking, you know, playing games out, lovely weather, like, oh, so good. So good. If anyone is interested in teaching internationally, <laughs> by all means, I'm always happy to talk about it because having a fall break is pretty awesome for a whole week. And, you know, hanging out in beer gardens all over Europe playing games. Fantastic. Not terrible. Fantastic. Not terrible. <laughs> so speaking of people trying to get in touch with you, uh, where can you be found online right now? What is the easiest way to reach you? So my website is kathleenmercury.com and I share all of my game design teaching resources there for free. Everything you'd want to know about teaching game design. Um, they've been translated in different languages. Uh, I know Norway's War College uses my uh, stuff on mechanics. And so there you go. Hey, oh, Norway. Um, but you can contact me. Anyone can contact me through there. Um, I, I'm on uh, Twitter and uh, Instagram at, at Mercury. So it's seven M's. Um, I'm rarely on Twitter and Mercury. And then the Instagram is more vanity, but that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> And uh, for those of you who are out there listening, hopefully you know by now that I can be found anywhere online as Beyond Solitaire. Uh, but Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a wonderful conversation. This has been a treat for me too. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. And everybody out there, please like, subscribe, comment, ask questions, and most of all, happy gaming. Yay.